0: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the World Affairs Council, I'm very proud to present to you today the distinguished American Dr. Henry Kissinger. Would you please join me in welcoming him? Let's see. All right. Well, Dr. Kissinger, let me begin by saying what a thrill it is to be here with the Babe Ruth of International Statesman. (laughs) And I want to begin at the beginning, and that is uh, you started out your academic career at Harvard, but but in studying it, it seems like you were always looking toward becoming a player in international affairs and not just a mere commentator. So beginning with a PhD, give us what it was that put your sights on, on being on the playing field and not just a, a commentator on the sidelines?
2: Actually, uh, I didn't start out you didn't. that way. When I came to this country in 1938, I had to go to work in a shaving brush factory. And I went to school at night, and I was studying accounting and City College in New York then in the army it's where I got the commitment to try to do public service at some point and then under the GI Bill of Rights I went to Harvard now uh... I didn't have a fixed plan how, how to get into in, in public service. And I usually tell my students who want to get into public service do what interests you most any any year in what you're studying and if you write something significant sooner or later they'll find you. That if you try to plot it Uh, In my life, I was appointed national security advisor by Richard Nixon, whom I had never met. And I had been foreign policy advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, who was the principal opponent Mm -hmm. of Nixon. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you can plan public service what you can do is reflect about where the country should go and what contribution you might make. And then let life take care of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you've certainly done a good job of that. Uh, talking about, uh, <laughs> talking about uh, your service with, with President Nixon in, in your book, Years of Upheaval, you said there was no true Nixon. There were several warring personalities which struggled for preeminence in the same individual. Obviously, there was there was a very good Nixon and there was a bad Nixon. And fortunately, you connected with the good Nixon with all your foreign achievements. But did you ever figure out who or what was motivating the bad Nixon?
2: No, I, I never saw the bad Nixon. And I don't accept the uh, general media notion. Uh, I think Nixon was a distinguished president who performed uh, great service for the country. He suffered from some personal insecurities, and that made his human relationships more complex than they should have been. And in order to balance those, he sometimes did things that uh, trying to avoid direct personal confrontations, uh, things of that nature. But if you look at the actual decisions that he made uh, in both the domestic and foreign policy, he had a, uh, a principle that was you pay the same price for doing something halfway as for doing it completely. Mm. So you might as well do it completely. And I really urge people to look at what he did and not at these debates about uh, Watergate which was a collection of petty, stupid uh, things Uh, and some of which he wasn't even directly involved. So at any rate, I I think Nixon will be seen over time as an important president.
1: Well, on the subject of great international leadership in your book, Diplomacy, uh, you say that top political leadership involves bridging the gap between experience and vision which requires an instinctive grasp of historical currents and also requires being bold enough to operate at the limit of what a situation permits. So using your definition, not including yourself, who do you regard as the two or three top political leaders in the world over the last 50 years?
2: That I have been able to observe. Uh, De Gaulle,
1: Gaulle? Uh,
2: Mandela, Sadat, Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and Theodore Roosevelt. I'm just applying criteria you you gave but saying necessarily I'd vote for the but, uh, <laughs> uh, Well
1: Why don't you give us a, a few sentences for example about...
2: Mao was a... Mao? Well, <laughs> he's uh, responsible for many dead, but I'm, thing in terms of the impact on the world and the society.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the time you spent uh, as uh, President Nixon's National Security Advisor, obviously one of the greatest challenges was you being the lead negotiator to, to bring us out of the Vietnam War. And on behalf of all people my age, I want to thank you for bringing us out of the Vietnam War. But from your perspective, after you succeeded in getting us extricated, uh, what was it that caused South Vietnam to, to, to fall as fast as it did after, after the U.S. had removed itself from the war?
2: Well, to me, the tragedy of the whole experience in Vietnam was that America ended that war for the absolutely best of motives. It wanted to achieve in Asia what we had achieved in Europe, namely to keep countries out of the control of communist pressures. And the administrations who got us involved, uh, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, did not estimate correctly that the challenge in Vietnam was different than Europe because Vietnam had no history of being a state. So a state had to be built in the middle of a civil war. And then sometime in that process America turned on itself. And the issue of the Vietnam War became a huge debate on the theory that the government was somehow guilty and you had to pressure the government. Now I saw and worked with Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon and, and nobody had a greater incentive to get out of the war than the President of the United States but we were dealing with an adversary we approached, we Americans, approached the issue as a search for compromise. The Vietnamese, to the Vietnamese, compromise was defeat. Mm. So they wanted to bring down the South Vietnamese political structure. Now by 72, we had achieved a position where they, and in the negotiations that I conducted, which was sort of a nightmare because they would read to me statements from this Senate and from the uh, New York Times, and I would say, "Here is our position," and I'd say, don't, we, "We don't have to pay attention to that. Somebody has already offered more." Well, and finally, by '72, end of '72, we got an agreement. Could that agreement have lasted? Who knows? We thought it could. But then came war again. And the Congress cut the budget for Vietnam from $2.5 billion to $700 million at a time when oil prices were quadrupling. So that the Vietnamese army had to ration artillery shells and limit flights then the Congress prohibited any American military action in support of the agreement. But if you make an agreement that you're not willing to enforce, that's a kind of surrender. So I look back to Vietnam uh, with great sadness because... The country should never be that divided. The vast majority of Americans, if they had understood what we were up against, would have come, I think, to very similar conclusions. Our basic view was we will be very flexible on military things, but we will not turn over people who, in reliance on the American word, have chosen our side, we will not turn them over to the communists. If they want want to vote themselves being communists somewhere down the line, that's their problem. So I think right now (laughs) Vietnam is not being taught at universities in any objective way. Someday, we really have to ask ourselves how we came to split our country so much, and administrations have a responsibility, but the way the outside community did this, this is in my view why Vietnam collapsed so quickly. Could it have maintained itself indefinitely? I don't know that. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but maybe it could have gone the way South Korea did. It certainly has the resources.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you were one of our first foreign policy experts to recognize that America has limits on, on what it can do in international affairs. And obviously, our nation's ambitions exceeded our military commitment and probably our political will in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. So, why does America keep entering wars that it doesn't know how to end?
2: Because we have a tendency. We have a tendency to deal with foreign policy as a missionary enterprise and that we define our purpose as transforming the world to our principles. And as a general objective, that is, of course, what we prefer. But when you apply it to concrete cases, then uh, you have to ask yourself what the limits are of what America can do. When you take Iraq, you have a Shia, a third of the country is Shia, a third of the country is Sunni, a third of the country is Kurds. They were put together into a single country only in 1920 by the British who wanted to block Iran and they wanted to block the Arab uh, uh, national resurgence and they had no specific idea how to make a country out of this. Now our objectives in Iraq were absolutely noble. but. The Shia and Sunni have been fighting each other since the ninth century. That's a religious conflict and the Kurds are yet another group that has been striving for independence. So when we go in there then and make a military occupation, uh, on the whole, we've actually been fairly successful in what you could do in a 10-year period. But then the American public's support ran out, ran out of it. So I agree with the drift of your question, which is, if I understand it correctly, we have fought four wars, which we entered with great enthusiasm. All of these wars were fought with 80% public support initially. And then we didn't know how to end them. And the reason we didn't know how to end them was because we did not translate our general objectives into political objectives that could lead to a successful negotiation, or we didn't understand properly the extent of of thinking uh, of the other side. So, one of the big tasks in front of our country now is to recognize two things. One, for many issues in the world, we are still indispensable. But in exercising our influence, we have to divide these issues intellectually, into those which are so important to us that we would have to do them alone if necessary. Uh, And then into issues that are important to us but which we can't succeed in carrying out unless there's widespread support. Mm -hmm. And finally into issues that while they're significant we can't do and so we have to start this way second thing in my opinion we have to learn is we have these wars with which we had trouble were fought in the interior of Asia along front lines where the enemy would win if it only survived. The enemy didn't have to do anything except survive. Uh, So time was totally on their side. Uh, We have to come to a more peripheral strategy in which we maximize our geographic position. Uh, if, If you look at how Wellington defeated Napoleon. It wasn't in the center of the continent at first, it was at the very edge of the continent. So these are general observations. But also when you talk of American failures, you have to talk about American successes. So we won the Cold War. We restored Europe. The international system is more or less following market principle maxims, Uh, but we became too enthusiastic about the engineering we could do in countries like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan.
1: Which brings us to Syria. Uh, Obviously that's, that's a hot situation. Uh, Last week, you said America should do what we can short of using ground forces, but with over 70,000 killed and over uh, 1 million people having fled the country in the last year and now Iran stepping up with substantial military assistance to the Syrian government, if you're President of the United States today, what steps would you take regarding the Syrian crisis?
2: first step I take is to get the smartest people I can find to analyse the problem and tell me what is the issue here. Uh, and I think you will come to uh, they will come to, to this conclusion. Uh, when this process started, a lot of American attention was focused on how to get rid of of Azad, as if it were a question of an individual. Now, the thing to remember about Azad is he started in life as an ophthalmologist. Uh, I'm sure he's sitting in Damascus now, mourning the day when his father pulled him out of his ophthalmology practice in London (laughs) because his older brother had been killed in an automobile accident. So he represents, he's not an individual, he represents the Alawite minority, Shia minority that has been governing in uh, Syria since the 70s and they supplied most of the officers in the army. So it's really an ethnic struggle between Alawites on the one hand, Sunnis on the other, and where most of the other minorities including the Christians uh, are supporting the Alawites because they're afraid of Sunni domination. So, when you look at an ethnic conflict, uh, of course you could say if you put in overpowering force, you might be able to get it in, under control. But you then might also be, as in Iraq, in the middle of a civil war of all against all. So, I think we have, what is our national interest? We certainly have an American national interest to prevent Iran from emerging out of this as a dominant country in Syria. And so I would support anything by which we support forces that fight the Iranians. On the outcome, what is most conducive comp- to our principles would be an outcome in which every ethnic group can lead a certain autonomous existence and comes together in a benign central government. But that, when you say that, you know, during World War II allegedly somebody said the way to solve the submarine problem is to heat the ocean and boil them to the surface. And somebody said, how do you do that? He said, I've given you the idea, the technical implementation. It's it's up to you. (laughs) Uh, So as a general rule, I think we should... If we can identify ethnic groups that support an outcome like I've described and favor supporting them. Mm-hmm. What I don't think we should do is to get into another open-ended commitment where we put military forces into a country which is in the midst of a civil war that has gone on for a long time and we try with American uh, uh, sacrifices... Uh, to do that that will end like afghanistan and so what we should do uh, i think in with in syria russia could be helpful because the fear of russia is they have 30 million muslims in their country and their fear is that if radicalism spreads too much in Syria, it will reach their, their country very fast. So can we get together with the Europeans and Russia uh, to come up with some guiding principles? And can we find groups that, in, after success, will govern according to these principles? But if we can't do these things, Uh, Then, I know it's a tragedy, but we can't solve every tragedy by American military presence uh, on on the ground. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, when most people hear the name Kissinger, the first word that comes to mind is China and the diplomatic revolution that you and President Nixon engineered there. Uh, Earlier this week, new Chinese President Xi said his number one priority is for China to surpass the U.S. as the world's top military power, and he predicted a marathon contest for global dominion. What's your reaction to that statement for global dominion at a time when our congressmen in Washington, D.C., are aggressively pursuing ways to cut America's defense budget?
2: Uh, she is a newly installed president in a country who probably has, almost certainly has less power than the American president. In the sense that he can't just walk into his office and order something, it's a country that is run by a constellation of various constituencies, in which she is clearly the dominant, uh, the dominant figure. So you, I always, when I see these speeches, I want to see what audience is he uh, addressing. But let's talk about it conceptually. Uh, in the history of the world when you have a country that is rising, like China, and a country that's well-established like the United States, it uh, very often leads to conflict. And many people say World War I started because Germany rose and Britain was there and the established countries and the new country went to war. And it's true. But then you'd have to ask yourself, if the people who went to war in 1914 had known what the world would look like in 1918, would they have ever gone to war? I doubt it. So here we have with China, a country with a different culture, considerable development, and uh, can they outdo us in a military way? I can't conceive it. But if they try to do this, we will have a conflict, a written period. Uh, I think we should attempt. And that will work only if they'll join us. To see whether in a world in which there are so many problems to be solved, we can evolve a cooperative model. Uh, from a purely military point of view, it's very hard to see how either country would really defeat the other. But when you have uh, ener- energy non-proliferation the cyber issues which really is a shorthand for all the new technologies that are developing uh, I think a cooperative effort is needed to see whether they can be solved if China really does what the what their president has said and they'd have a long way to go uh, then, of course, we will resist. And and we would resist from a very strong position. Look, here is a country that right now has to move 400 million people from the countryside to the cities. They have, by their own terms, a significant problem of Uh, of corruption. They have to move the center of gravity of their country from the coast into the interior. And to do all of this in the midst of a military-type conflict with the United States would be very short-sighted from their point of view. So I think we should know what our national interest is. And our national interest is that we will not permit the hegemony of any country uh, uh, in the world but we also should recognize that we are living in a new world look how the energy pattern has changed in which the significance of the Middle East is diminishing because of our own development of energy sources in our own country so I think we should trust on our own evolution and uh, if military conflicts are necessary we'll of course do it but first we should try to construct a more peaceful international system.
1: Now during the lunch, I don't know if you saw it or not, we had many photographs of you with a number of uh, Israeli and Arab leaders over over the last several decades and of course Uh, We're mindful of your success in ending the Yom Kippur War by playing a lead role and initiating meetings to to, to bring to uh, fruition a resolution through shuttle diplomacy. Now let's again assume that today it's President Kissinger. Would you be taking the lead in, in getting discussions going between the Israeli and Palestinian leaders in hopes of brokering a settlement?
2: Well, uh, in 1973, uh, when I was active and started a number of these processes, the situation was that uh, the people armed by the United States had won the war. So that if those people who wanted a change realized that we were the key To a solution that gave us a very strong bargaining position. In the present world, we have the Arab Spring, which is started as a uh, expression of local resentments, but has now brought in every country into key positions the Muslim Brotherhood, which, for Decades has dedicated itself to an anti-Western, pro-Sharia type uh, so that the objective conditions and the calculations people make have become more uncertain. Still, I think an effort should be made to promote a Palestinian-Israeli, negotiation. The question is whether we should aim at a negotiation that settles everything all at once or whether we should go step by step. I, on the whole, have preferred step by step because when you want to do the whole thing and you want to get guarantees and verification of every aspect, it gets so complicated and so dependent on domestic changes, that it often blows up in your face. But I I would be open-minded, and I think it is a worthwhile effort for the administration to support that process. Mm
1: -hmm. For my last question, before we get to questions from the audience, we have to talk about Iran, a country that's bedeviled the United States now for several decades. And you've said recently several times that the next 12 months are crucial and that President Obama has uh, important decisions and policies and strategies that he needs to implement involving this uh, very volatile situation. So, again, let's assume we got President Kissinger instead of President Obama. What do you do during the next 12 months about that situation?
2: Because you'd have to change the Constitution (laughs) to make it (laughs) invadices.
1: All right, that's a so minor that, issue. Let's assume we've gotten past
2: that. Uh, look, I am often described as a realist. But I, I think that is not a good way of looking at it. The right way to look at these problems is to say, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to prevent and what are the facts in the case? Mm-hmm. But you would do it as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Now the facts in the case are these for at least fifteen years. The United States and its allies have said that they are that a Iranian nuclear military capability is intolerable. They have said it is unacceptable but they've never exactly defined what they mean by unacceptable and what they mean by military capability. There are three elements to military strategic capability. Delivery systems, Physical material and warheads. The Iranians have done the delivery systems. I mean, they are out of control. And they are very hard to stop. So now they are in the phase of acquiring physical material. That is the most difficult part. And then to make a warhead is relatively easy if you have all the physical material. So when I say something has to be decided in the next 12 months, I mean this. That if this process goes on for much longer, and scientists would have to tell you the exact number, Iran could... Acc- could accumulate so much physical material that they could go at any moment to the warhead thing, just like the Koreans have been doing and, and, and did. If that happens, this will change the situation in the region completely. Because then other countries will do their utmost to buy or build nuclear weapons. So those are the stakes. Now, the issue is we're engaged in a negotiation. So we have to look at this negotiation to see, are we making a progress that enables us to say we have stopped the enrichment process at a point where they could not get nuclear weapons except by a huge violation extended over a long period of time and uh, I think we're getting very close to a point where this point will be reached. So then the President has to decide whether to step up sanctions, uh, use other pressures, or whether to make some settlement along whatever lines uh, he was, and I'm bothered by the fact if you compare the original position the United States took 15 years ago with what where we are now, you could come to the conclusion as a as an Iranian that rejecting American proposals doesn't cost you much because you get a better offer every time Mm. there's a new negotiation. It's a very tough decision that has to be made, and we have to remember in making it not to get ourselves into another open-ended conflict, but that's where I think we stand. Uh, And that's why I say we can't carry this process as a negotiation much further without either getting an agreement or a significant increase in pressure.
1: Jim Falk?
0: Thomas, thank you so much And, and you can imagine the number of questions that that we've received from the audience and we just have time for one or two more and many of them have asked about Dr. Kissinger what really worries you the most that affects our national interest and world security and there were many questions about the changes in North Korea and the recent uh, uh, aggressive posture of the new leader
2: let me make one attempt it's in the essence of a discussion like we're having that you talk about problems because you're bound to ask questions of things that bother you but if you look at if you ask yourself for the future of the world and say in over the next thirty years, uh, why would the United States not be able to be at the beginning of a great period rather than at the beginning of a uh, the change in the energy production which to us, I mean we look at it, it's a daily story but if we become self-sufficient or substantially self-sufficient in energy the significance of some of the regions in the world whose troubles have been able to blackmail us will be significantly different and we know that the manufacturing sector in the United States can pick up significantly when our energy costs go down as uh, as they will. So, and if you look around the world, uh, whose hand would you rather play than the American world? So I am actually optimistic about uh, the long-term trends. But then what worries me most Uh, You mentioned North Korea. North Korea is an absolutely weird regime. Uh, It's not... I mean communist regimes have a party and some kind of structure. The North Korean regime is a a family enterprise run by one family uh, in an unbelievably brutal manner. Uh, For example, Here's a country, every house of which has a radio, that the inhabitants cannot turn off so that the government can talk to them 24 hours a day. If you compare North Korea used to be the industrial base for Korea, you compare North Korea and South Korea, Uh, South Korea is a basket, uh, North Korea is a basket case in almost every respect, except that at the cost of horrible famines, they have managed to build a few nuclear weapons. And their conduct of international affairs is based on irrationality, so they threaten they will go to war. I don't think they have enough reserves to go to war for more than two weeks. Uh, <laughs> this is not a strong country. It's a ruthless country that if it fires artillery into Seoul could do huge damage. Uh, and I'm not worried about its nuclear weapons. It's certainly not uh, One of the dangers is, however, It's a country that matters a great deal to China, to Japan, and now to us. I could imagine that if the North Korean regime collapses one day, that then the attempt by China, US, Russia, everybody to try to calibrate this could lead to a very dangerous situation. So this is something that we ought to address. The capacity of North Korea to threaten anyone for more than a suicide attack Mm -hmm. is in my opinion extremely limited but it's an extremely ruthless regime Uh, but it's not a very strong regime It's huge suffering uh, which they exact by uh, uh, by terror. But it's a subject on which the surrounding countries really ought to come to some understanding and not let themselves be sucked into a conflict by this really irresponsible bunch of leaders.
0: We have a last question, and I'd like to remind the audience to remain seated uh, because we'll have a short presentation at the end of the program. Dr. Kissinger, so much has changed in the role of the media since when you were Secretary of State. How has those changes affected the conduct of, of, of foreign policy now?
2: Well, you know, I, I hate to be nostalgic about the role of media. Uh, we had a tough time with the media that existed <laughs> uh, and at that uh, at that period, uh, the way the media have changed in that period is when when I first came into government, there was there was the evening news, mm-hmm. and that was the really the key television event about news. Now you have a news cycle, uh, 24 hours a day, and the presenters have to get your attention, so they have to recycle crises, and then they have to have controversy whose essential nature is rarely uh, explained so that the level of concern of the public is heightened but it's not focused on uh, any anything uh, uh, sufficiently c- concrete uh, in the writing world and God knows uh, uh, I did not enjoy that either uh, but still there were a few columnists who were doing serious work over extended periods of time uh, no, I don't know any columnist who to today would have that degree of influence. So the shift to a uh, 24 hour news cycle. And another thing is the way knowledge is acquired. Uh, when you read something, you have to put it into some concept to retain it in your mind, because otherwise, but when you can acquire knowledge by pressing a button, you can always meet your immediate need by looking it up on Google. Mm-hmm. And then you can forget it and think you can go back to this. So then the, the, the total impact of that is less conceptual understanding. But the real knowledge, in my opinion at least, consists of getting a view of how you go from where you are to where you haven't been. And you can't look that up. You can only acquire that. And when in studies of statesmen that I have considered myself with, the people who have been best are the ones who had a sense of history. And our society now is getting deprived of that, to some extent. Uh, But again, on the positive side, there are so many technical means of addressing what I've described, that once it's recognized, and I don't want to leave you with a pessimistic impression, I've described problems because I was asked about problems. Uh, if you ask me for the overall situation, if we straighten out our own thinking, this could be the beginning of a great period for America, not a period of retreat. That want to that be my basic message to you.
0: And, and, and that is a wonderful message for us to thank you and to end on. Dr. Kissinger? Thank you for the contributions you've made to our nation's history.
2: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.